This episode is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a bit different than most summers. We're staying at home for the most part, and we're finding ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players, ages 10 and up, although younger kids can play with adult guidance. It is a great way to keep families engaged in off screens, even if it's just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. And it's really easy to pick up. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of our podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. It is the first female first Yay. of 2020, of which 2020. means we are joined once again by our good friend and coworker Eve. Hi. Yay. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. Thank oh, you for sure. having me again. We just had a rousing discussion about aliens yep. <laughs> and how they should look, resolutions running um, and disliking running. Yes. And then <laughs> a little bit of uh, our, our kind of disastrous mornings, Eve and I yes. had a bit of a... Mishaps. Yes, but we made it through them, which is the important part. We did. We did. You're here to tell the tale. That actually is probably a very important part to a lot of these female firsts we talk about. Yeah, you're right, because they do get pretty intense in some parts. Like, they went through a lot, they struggled a lot, and they fought a lot. But, you know, they did a lot of good things, too. Yes, and the one, the person you brought for us today, she did so much. Oh, my gosh. And um, very important to the discussions we're having now around the environment and sustainability, things that are on a lot of people's minds as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, I feel like it's really good to be able to talk about, today we're going to be talking about Wangari Muta Matai. Um, And she did a lot of stuff that had to do with environmental activism. And that is clearly something that we're talking about right now today. And I, I didn't choose, say, oh, let let me find somebody who's doing something that has to do with the environment. It just kind of came like, oh, she's someone who is, you know, first of all, from the African continent, which I feel like maybe we've, maybe we've discussed somebody from the African continent so far. I can't remember. But yeah, um, like that was really important to me. And also the actual work that she's doing is so relevant into what we're talking about. And is also very recent and also had a very global impact. Um, and she knows what she's talking about. She knows what she's doing. And she's also left a great legacy behind her that just kind of touched people of all different cultures and people of all different nationalities, which I think is a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I, I was reading her her story, I, I we always stress the importance of context in these stories that we um, that you bring to us. Um, and it's, it is recent, and it's kind of shocking how much she did and how much things have changed just through the 60s and 70s, kind of just this tumultuous cauldron of all these things happening. Yeah. And is also just, you know, 
very indicative of the actual issues that people were going through in Kenya and on the African continent at the mm-hmm. time because obviously environmental issues are global issues, but they're also very specific to the locales and the climates in which all the activists separately reside. Um, they're all different, but also related in some way. And I think her perspective and how she kind of got into her activism and her work is indicative of that. But I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself right now. Let me introduce. <laughs> yeah, let's go. For I'm it. just like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. And it's I haven't even said who she really is. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Matai was the first African woman to win the Nobel Prize. And she was the first woman to become an assistant professor at the University of Nairobi. She was the first woman to head a university department in Kenya and the first woman in Eastern and Central Africa to earn a PhD. So... A lot of firsts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's what we're here for, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. (laughs) That's how we like it. So she was born on April 1st, 1940 in Neri, Kenya. And she was the daughter of Kikuyu subsistence farmers. The Kikuyu are an ethnic group in Kenya. She had five siblings. And she was raised in an area of Kenya that was known as the White Highlands, Mm -hmm. which was so-called because there was policy that certain agricultural lands in Kenya should be reserved for Europeans. So her older brother convinced their parents that she go to school rather than focus on household responsibilities, which you could imagine were plentiful because she had so many siblings, um, rather big family to take care of. She went to the Atithe Primary School, the St. Cecilia School, and then the Laredo Lemuro Girls School. So after completing school there, she got a scholarship. And that's because the Kennedy administration in the U.S. at the time was funding initiatives for people in Eastern Africa and in Kenya specifically to study in the U.S. And so that's how she got a scholarship to study at university in the U.S. So where she ended up going was Mount St. Scholastica College in Kansas. And she stayed in U.S. to study at university for a bit. She graduated with her bachelor's in biology in 1964. And then she stayed in the U.S. She got her master's from the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. And then so by this time, when she returned to Kenya after she graduated, the whole like Eastern colonialism process was ending. Kenya had gained its independence and when she went back, there is she had a research assistant position that had been promised to her. So she was recruited to be a research assistant in zoology. And that was at the University of Nairobi. And she found out when she got to the campus that she had been denied the position. And she thought that that was because of gender discrimination. So after that, she got another research assistant position, and this time it was in the Department of Veterinary Anatomy. So she started, she continued working. She was not discouraged by that, so she started pursuing her doctoral studies in Germany. She got her PhD from the University of Nairobi. And so she was the first woman to get a doctorate degree in East and Central Africa. Wow. That's pretty, I can't even imagine being the first person or a woman anything yeah (laughs) that level of achievement (laughs) that level of achievement yeah yeah my first are not (laughs) not on that same plane right (laughs) that's cool though it didn't lead a pathway for other women not that i know of to be able to accomplish (laughs) such a thing not that i know of I, i mean just like i wonder 
the reporting on it or they, they like, wow, look, this woman has become the first to do this. Right. Yeah. And all the negativity possibly. Probably. Her. Yeah. But as we know from, I feel like, previous people and just in general how these things work, a lot of those firsts aren't recognized in a contemporary manner. It's just yes. like the person's doing a thing. And then we go back and look at them, sometimes posthumously, you know, way back in the day. Um, but we start to realize, oh, okay, you know, this yeah. this happened and this is part of a a long story yes. and a long lineage of people and things that they did. So we kind of situate the first within that history after a lot of the time. Right. That's true. That's a good point. As far as her personal life, she married a Nairobi businessman who kind of had aspirations in politics. And she married him in 1969. She met him a few years before. And eventually they had three kids together. And he ran for parliament in the early 1970s. His first campaign was unsuccessful, even though she helped him with that. And then later in their story, in the early 1980s, they went through this whole divorce suit. And he accused her of adultery. And it's also said that he thought that she was too educated and too strong-willed and minded and too hard to control. And that was part of the reason that they got a divorce. But it was a pretty contentious situation. Um, She ended up going to court. She lost the case. They ended up being divorced. She was even jailed for a short time, about three days afterward, because she accused the judge of being incompetent. Whoa. (laughs) And this is also when his last name was spelled with one A, M-A, T-H-A-I. And she changed her name to have two A's because of the whole situation. Dang. He requested that. Yeah. So it was, that was, you know, later in life after years of them having been together. They separated before they divorced. But yeah, that was part of their story. Yeah. So... In 1973, and this is where we get to all of the things, obviously we're not going to have room to like talk about every single thing that she did because she did so many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1973, she became the director of Nairobi's branch of the National Red Cross. And so we see her already in the late 60s, early 70s, getting into all of her activism, all of her environmental work and realizing through her research and just her personal life, like observation. The, the thing I really love about her story is like how often we think of, how we think of academics in terms of the work that they do. Like they did all this study at these universities and this is, their education is what influenced them and what made them be able to address issues in a certain way. But observation is also a very important thing in our lives that can drive us to do better things because, and I think her story is just a great example of that. Like she talks about how much in during her childhood and during her life, how she was just noticing what was happening around her, how she was listening to village women tell her what they needed. And that observation is a big part of what drove her to do her environmental work, realizing that she could connect the things that are actually happening around her and the work that she's interested in doing and the skills that she does have and the education that she is getting and combining the two, well, those several things together to really create a huge impact. Mm -hmm. So I really like that about her story. Um, Yeah, so 
She started moving up in her roles at the university. She became a senior lecturer in the 1970s, then she became the chair of her department, and then she became an assistant professor in 1977. And so her postdoctoral research made her, as I was saying, aware of all the things that was happening in her country, especially in the rural areas and all the issues that people were facing, whether that had to do with the environment or like personal issues. And we'll we'll get into some of the things that specifically that drove her research that was happening in Kenya at the time. And so later, her husband campaigned for a seat in parliament again in one, and this was before they divorced. One thing that he advocated for was finding jobs for the unemployed. And so with that spirit, that energy that was happening, Matai connected that need to her environmental efforts, and then she started this business called EnviroCare, where she was getting people to plant trees. So that business wasn't that successful, but those efforts did lead her to, you know, more successful efforts. And the connections that she already had with all these people through the work that she was doing led to her getting the National Council of Women of Kenya to help her launch a tree planting project called Save the Land Harambe. And Harambe is a Swahili word that means all pulled together. Mm -hmm. And that eventually turned into the Green Belt Movement, which is one of her, you know, the most well-known initiatives, even though she did a ton. Right. Yeah. 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 But that's, that's both. It's a huge, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, a huge big organization. One. Uh-huh. Yeah. She was active in the National Council of Women of Kenya for a really long time, from around 1976 to 87. While she was serving with them, she started introducing this idea of community-based tree planting that she had already introduced through her other work. Much of the population in Africa depended on wood for fuel. But at the time, there was a lot of deforestation happening. Mm-hmm. So, as there still is. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. trees were depleting because they were being raised and they weren't being replaced at the same rate. Um, so, obviously, that leads to a lot of different issues, including nutritional deficiencies, poverty, um, because there would be they had to walk a long way to get water, to be able to get the fuel, um, There was desert where there once was trees. The deforestation also caused soil runoff and water pollution, which is obviously important to a person being able to sustain themselves in terms of the food that they eat. And speaking of sustain themselves, a lot of the children also had to start being fed with processed foods because of this. And livestock didn't have vegetation to eat. And on top of all that, under the colonial period, like British governors, they were planting non-native trees instead of indigenous trees. So it just had all these effects on the way that people lived and their ability to live whole and fruitful lives. So she started getting into all that and realizing how that affected people and specifically women. And she opened an agency that paid impoverished people to plant trees and shrubs. And so she decided to campaign for a seat in parliament that would become open in Neri in 1982. And to do this, she had to resign from the University of Nairobi. That was one condition that she she couldn't be there to be able to run. And so the electoral authorities said that she couldn't run. She was disqualified from running because she hadn't registered to vote. So because of that registration in the last presidential election, because that registration technicality, 
they kind of pulled her out of that situation. And she obviously took issue with that decision, but she ended up, you know, being disqualified anyway. Mm-hmm. And wanted to go back to the university because obviously she needs a job. Yeah. Um, and they refused to rehire her or restore her benefits. And they evicted her from university housing since she was no longer there anymore. Right. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a rough time. That's, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a rough time. Uh-huh. So that's definitely one thread in her story, which is there were, she had a lot of opposition. So she did have a lot of supporters and also supported a lot of people mm-hmm. through employment and just, like, you know, personal support. But she had a lot of people who opposed the work that she was doing because she was so pro-democracy, the things that she was talking about, the things that she was standing up against, and was viewed as kind of anti-government. And in that respect, a lot of the press that she got and that the Green Belt movement got in the media was negative. Right. And because of that, a lot of people were discouraged from wanting to be associated with the movement because of its, you know, assumed leanings. Yeah, yeah. reputation. Mm -hmm. But it was still a successful movement, which we'll get into too. Yeah. And so she poured her energy into that Green Belt movement, um, and its main focus was poverty reduction and environmental conservation and focusing on this singular, this goal of planting trees. Mm -hmm. And... Its goal was to plant trees all across Kenya to fight erosion and to create firewood for the fuel for people there and to create jobs for women because women were really instrumental in being the people who planted the trees. And so over the years, they planted tens of millions of trees in Africa. Wow. Yes. They did this by establishing tons of nurseries that offered free seedlings to people um, and then the communities would plant them, and a very small amount, a small payment was given for every tree that was planted, but they had to make sure that they took care of the tree for three months. That was mm-hmm. part of the deal. And even though it was a small amount, it obvi- like, that could make a big difference right. in someone's life. Right. Um, for many of those women who were subsistence farmers and didn't have extra food to give for, or to sell, not give, that money was some of their only income. Mm-hmm. Wow. Man, tens of millions of tens trees. And was able to help that many in different ways. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And I think that'd be really cool. I know we'll probably get to this later, but there's an interview um, that Wangari did with um, on, on Being, and she described the power of seeing a tree that you've planted. Right. Yeah. Like years and years later. And right. just knowing that you did that and it's going to outlast you. That, yeah. 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 It's, yeah, the the this tree kind of became the tree itself through all the work that she did kind of became this movement of like democracy of like the legacy of of so many things yeah. through the work that she did. Yeah. So yeah, that's like a really good point. And all the work through the green belt movement also helped conserve the soil and the ecology of the land and obviously gave thousands of people opportunities for employment. And she worked over time, this became more than just about trees. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was that from the beginning, but mm-hmm. they also started to provide other services besides tree planting. So she worked with the National Council of Women of Kenya to give services like family planning, 
like nutrition, food security, HIV awareness, and leadership skills. So it became this environmental and civic educational program for people. And that ended up spreading its tendrils throughout a bunch of countries in Africa and throughout the world as well. And eventually it formally separated from the National Council of Women of Kenya. Hmm. And she, even though Matai was already so like involved in politics, she became more involved in politics over time and protest and activism. And in 1989, she protested the construction of a huge office tower in Uhuru Park in Nairobi. And so she started sending out a bunch of letters to all of these people, different government officials, different organizations in Kenya to protest, like just putting the pressure on people to protest this office tower being built. It was a whole complex thing. And she claimed that the building was expensive and that money should instead be spent on other things because this was going to be a tens of millions of dollar project poverty, hunger, and education. And obviously, this project had a bunch of foreign investors. And through all of the protesting that happened, even though she was getting a lot of black in the press once again for her protest and for not being, what's quiet, the word I'm looking like, for? Quiet, quaint. Complacent. Yeah, yeah, complacent. And all those things that, you know, a woman was supposed to be. She still managed to, like, that that whole protests managed to be successful and investors ended up pulling out of the whole situation not long after her protesting began and the skyscraper wasn't built. Wow. So that was one thing of the many things that yes. she protested against. Mm-hmm. And she also opposed the one-party state that there was in Kenya at the time. So Matai was also involved in the Forum for the Restoration of Democracy, which was a group that opposed, among other things, this group kind of branched off had groups in different countries, but in Kenya, it was opposed to the leadership of the president, Daniel Arup Moy, and her opposition earned her the ire of the president, not just through her work with the forum, but also all the other things that she was doing. So going back to that project with the office tower, he was really against her speaking up about that too and had a lot of nasty things to say about her for her vocalizations on that issue. And she faced many arrests, beatings, and jailings because of the work that she was doing. She advocated for the release of political prisoners. And in 1992, she went on a hunger strike with a group of mothers of political prisoners. And that ended up being successful, even though she and a lot of other people who were involved in the strike were beaten by police during the protest. But at the end of that strike, the government did release the majority of the political prisoners. We have a lot more of our discussion with Eves, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So we know, listeners, it's been rough for a lot of people out there, and we've been very open about our experiences with therapy and how it's been so helpful for us in the past and in the present. And because of that, we wanted to highlight a service that we think might be of help to you all, BetterHelp, which offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and to help. 
You can talk with your counselors in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. And BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas. They can give you access to help that might not be available in your area. And you just have to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with a counselor in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is an affordable option and our listeners get 10% off your first month with a discount code MOMSTUFF. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better H-E-L-P.com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halo. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. They have eight color shades to choose from, everything from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. Everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. They have an amazing range of products too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. She was also arrested for more of her protest and later charged with spreading rumors that the president was planning to turn government power over to the military. And so while she was in jail waiting on her charge, she was refused medical treatment. So it's just like, it's, it's there was a lot of like fighting happening mm-hmm. there. Like there was a lot of conflict and a lot of this kind of fabrication of like issues when it came to the work that she was doing because she was so vocal and because she was so active um, in her environmental causes. And so in 1997, she said that she was running for parliament and for the presidency as part of the Liberal Party of Kenya. And as part of her campaign, she was continuing to say the same things, be about, be about what she'd always been about, basically, denouncing the corruption in the government and imagining a society where people really embraced their cultural and spiritual background um, as they participated in government. But her candidacy was withdrawn by the party without notifying her until days before the election. That said, she didn't announce her campaign until not long before the election itself, but she ended up not getting that parliament seat. Hmm. Wow. They they didn't tell her? They're just like... People are afraid of strong women. This is true. Of power. And obviously, the opposition, they had to do everything they could to try to undermine her. Didn't work, it seems. Yeah. She was determined. Yes. Another thing that she did as part of all her work was working on the Jubilee 2000 campaign, which was this global campaign. Um, But in her case, when she became the co-chair of the campaign in Kenya, which she did in 1998, um, specifically focusing on the countries in Africa, but the whole campaign was aiming to cancel 
foreign debt for poor countries by the year 2000, which is where that number 2000 comes from and the name of the campaign. Yeah, so she wasn't, there were a lot of people who were against her, including, you know, Moy and all a bunch of other government officials and just people in general um, who didn't like how she was challenging government and how she was speaking up for all these pro-democracy positions and all these activities that she had going on in relation to that. Just as some examples, she was hospitalized in 1999 for a head wound and a concussion that she suffered during a government-arranged attack. So she was working on this project where she and some supporters were planting trees in the Karura Forest, which is in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. And she was protesting against the clearing of the forest for private development. Um, That's one thing that happened to her. At another point, they forced the Green Belt Movement to move from its office um, in a government-owned building to her home. Um, When she formed the Tribal Clashes Resettlement Volunteer Service in 1993 to help victims of state-sanctioned political violence in the Rift Valley, the government accused her of inciting violence and tried to shut down her organization's meetings by sending in police to disrupt things. Yeah, so those are just some of the things that she was up against. Um, The list could go on, but we won't do that. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like quite a lot. And she definitely put her, she was somebody who put her body on the line. I was going to say she was a powerhouse. Yeah. And everything in her, obviously, in her work, in her ethic, and in just in her beliefs. Yeah. She was unmovable. Mm-hmm. You plant like a tree. Yes. <laughs> oh, look at that. Look what we I just did. Look, I'm actually kind of... Y'all work together on that one. Really <laughs> <laughs> Civil War. Here we go. We Captain got this. Captain America. Yeah. Um, I'm actually surprised there haven't been more tree puns, but I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad. It's not appropriate. You're but... saving them for the end is what you're really doing. <laughs> They're all in my head. <laughs> Keeping them to myself for once. <laughs> you, you're writing it, though, for, for later, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Writing yeah. them down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So one of her biggest opponents, <laughs> Moy, left office in 2002. And that same year, she ran for parliament and was elected with a large majority of the vote. Um, the president ended up appointing her the Minister for Environment, Natural Resources, and Wildlife, and she served in the government and parliament until 2005. And this is, um, we're getting into the later years of her life at this point, and she was recognized for a lot of her work. She got a lot of honorary degrees and awards, like too many to mention here, mm-hmm. um, but a ton of them. But one of the big ones was the Nobel Peace Prize, which she got in 2004. And she was the first African woman to get the Nobel Peace Prize. And she got it for her contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. So that's that's one of the awards that she got. And in her acceptance speech, which um, is really interesting, she noted how she was influenced by the things that, you know, as we were talking about earlier, she observed when she was a child in Kenya. Um, She saw forests being cleared and replaced by commercial plantations. And she saw local biodiversity being destroyed and... She also said that when she started the Green Belt Movement, she was really responding to the needs that rural women were saying that they had, which were specifically the lack of firewood, clean drinking water, balanced diets, shelter, and income. 
And she also called out to the fact, which is how integral women were in the development of the work that she wanted to do with the Greenbelt movement and the work that she ended up doing with the movement. And that be saying that because they were primary caretakers throughout Africa, they were responsible for taking care of the land and for taking care of the family, that they were often the first ones to become aware of any environmental damage that was happening, even if they didn't recognize how one thing was necessarily affecting the other in their personal experience. Right. Yeah. And she got, yeah, so some of the other awards that she got were the Goldman Environmental Prize, the French Legion of Honor, Japan's Grand Cordon of the Order of the Rising Sun. Um, Like I said, more honorary degrees. She also authored several books. One of them was a memoir that was called Unbowed and another book called The Challenge for Africa and other writings. She was named a UN Messenger of Peace in 2009. And the next year, in partnership with the University of Nairobi, she founded the Wangari Maathai Institute for Peace and Environmental Studies. And yeah, so she just continued help, not only doing her own work and her organization when it came to environmental causes, but also participating in like teaching other people about those things and making sure that other people learned about uh, environmental issues when it came to academics, but just general, you know, environmental education for people. Um, So, you know, spreading all of that knowledge around the world. And in 2011, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and she ended up dying that year from complications of the cancer. Yeah, but her legacy, that was what, you know, only so long ago. But, you know, her legacy is clearly still apparent in the world and apparent in Kenya. And she's well-remembered and fortunately was able to be recognized during her lifetime. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite things about her and the things that she did is there is this awareness of taking care of the future, of looking out for future generations, that she started all of these things and spread her knowledge to make sure that things would continue once she was no longer around. And I actually think that's one of the biggest problems with humanity and when it comes to sustainability is we're really bad about doing that. We're really bad about thinking about future generations because right now, this is the easy thing to do, to continue as we are. Right. But she made sure that she left behind these things so that hopefully we could continue the work that she was doing. Right. Yeah. It seems her whole ideas were an idea of the big picture. She didn't see as one little thing, it was we're planting trees. It's we're planting trees, but with these things in mind, whether it's to provide economic stability for a, a, a group of women or a group of people who need that assistance right now, but we'll do it through this avenue. She had this very thoughtful consciousness of how to get things done in a multifaceted way, yeah. which is phenomenal, mm-hmm. especially when you think of how little that happens today. This, there's no real conversation of what can we do and put it together as a blanket, not necessarily a blanket, but at least an overhaul of a whole system. And that's what she did mm-hmm. which all on her own, which is phenomenal, mm-hmm. especially with all of the pushback and seeing, okay, you go, you aren't seeing the bigger picture. 
you're just angry because I'm making a difference and it could be taken away from you, whether it's money or your fame or your credibility. Mm-hmm. But this is what it has to be done. That's phenomenal. It's yeah. a whole different level of thoughtfulness and a whole different level of understanding the need for sustainability, the need to, for growth, and the need to continue beyond. Yeah, and I think that, to the interesting point about what you said of her being having this kind of multifaceted way in which she worked is that her vision was also very singular um, and focused. Mm-hmm. And, like, she was like, I have a goal. Um, I know how I can get the thing done, and we're going to get it done, and we're going to get it done together. And just the, the way in which she empowered so many people, not in not from a position of like, I have the things and I have the knowledge and I have the education. I was fortunate enough to go to, you know, U.S. to study, you know, mm-hmm. under this scholarship that was funded by the government or anything like that. It was just kind of like, I'm not giving these people these things, these opportunities because I'm able to do that because she isn't, she is using her position of power, right. obviously, but it was in such a way that was community-led, you know? It was in such a way that was about the way that people work together and just it being so inspiring, the fact that she realized how important it was to incorporate all these other things when it came to the leadership development and stuff like that, where this wasn't just about a person here, there, getting this many Kenyan cents to, you know, grow a tree. Right. It was about growing trees and creating a better environment and creating a better world and within that creating better communities that were able to thrive and not just survive and that were connected and that were, you know, uh, future-focused but also present-focused. Where in a way they were like, this is my community that I have now and I'm working together with them to really, in this embodied way where my hands are on the soil And I'm really contributing to the future of my community, but also I'm thinking about our children that are here right now. What kind of food am I feeding them? What do our traditional diets look like? But also their future, like what will the land look like to them? Will they be able to respect their land? The children are learning to respect the land at the same time. Um, It's I, I just think, yeah, everything that she was doing was so important, but I'm just so struck by how many different things, but still how tight, like, right. her vision was. Right. And that's... It was very cohesive. Yeah, very cohesive. Yeah, and that's an amazing balancing act to pull off. Right. Of, yeah, we need to think about the future generations, but we also have to think about the present. Like, to be able to do both, mm. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and I also really find so many of these women you bring to as Eves, I find it so impressive that we know as women, I, at least I can speak from my own, I, I always have all these doubts. I have all these doubts, and a lot of times it keeps me from even putting myself forward for things, and that's we know that's why a lot of women don't run for office. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that the women you, you brought to us don't have doubts, but they just mm-hmm. were like, I somebody needs to do this. I can do it. Right. I'm going to step up. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you and I have talked about the times that we get criticisms, and that kind of sometimes shuts me down. I can't imagine the level of lies and criticisms that were mm-hmm. thrown at her purposely by the most powerful man in that country, in that nation at that point. Yeah. I mean, I could not, 
I don't know. I don't know how I would fathom or even feel under pressure, but to continue forth and still keep fighting and still keep fighting, still being told, you know, you are whatever damaging by those who have the loudest voices, but knowing that she can make a difference in what she's doing is cor- like right. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it's to look back on it now, you're like, oh, wow, that's encouraging. But to be in the middle of that, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. kind of like, oh, the fear of, of failing is already there, but being told. Mm-hmm. You're ruining something, or you're, you know, being you're a disaster to something. What a way to have to fight against that! How do you do that? And how was she able to do that? And she did, though, mm-hmm. and finally got what she deserved, all the accolades as she did earn. But man, that road to get there <laughs> had to be right. It had to be a long, long, very loud, obnoxious one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's impressive and inspiring, in a good way to start the year. Yeah. The female first. Um, is there anything else you want to add, Eve? I don't think so. I would highly recommend the interview oh. on on being. Yeah. It's very beautiful. Yeah, and just anything where she's speaking. Yes. <laughs> true. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> I highly recommend if you're looking for some some inspiration yeah. and like a newfound appreciation of trees. Right. Oh my gosh. Right. Uh, we are also in a city of trees. So yes. we are. Yes. It's a big if speaking of things being topical, uh that is a topic of conversation in Atlanta where we are right now, which is that we've historically been called the city of like the city in a forest, yeah. and we're known for having a ton of trees, which we're not the biggest metropolis like in the United States and definitely not in the world, but for being a city of our size and stature, we like have a lot of forest and a yeah. lot of tree mm-hmm. canopy here, but a lot of that is also being raised for private development and yeah. gentrification, which are huge things that are happening mm-hmm. right now in Atlanta. So on a micro level from this macro conversation we're having, all of her work is very relevant to things that are happening here right. in Metro Atlanta. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorite parts about Atlanta. So we will continue to see <laughs> where that goes. <laughs> yeah. We have some more to talk about, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's a game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free. Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, best fiends. This episode is brought to you by Chinet. The Chinet brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a a socially distanced 
barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products, I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before, that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chinet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. But uh, in the meantime... Thank you so much, Eves, for for coming on, as always. Thank you for having me. Where can the listeners find you? On social media, that is on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, I'm on This Day in History class, which is a different podcast. That one's about days in history, (laughs) clearly. (laughs) Um, You can also find me at Unpopular on all those same social media platforms. Uh, Yeah. Or Eves Jeffcoat is my name. And... Do whatever you want to do with that information. <laughs> <laughs> do kind things. Yeah. Uh, oh, good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. yes. But yeah, listeners, you should definitely go check both of those out. They're amazing. And if you would like to contact us, you can. Oh, yes. Um, our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I'm never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that investigates the search for the person responsible for the abductions of four missing girls in neighboring New England towns. For more than 50 years, each case has remained unsolved. Every day is like being lost in limbo. I pray every day that we find Lisa so we can go on. It wasn't until this past year that things took an unexpected turn, a breakthrough. Answers to decades-old questions and witnesses finally ready to talk. I know that that's the person that was there. I can describe what he's wearing. I can smell him a mile away. Jesus, Mary, and Josephine, I hope that's not a grave for many. Oh, you know what? I think it is. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Young Rockers Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.